have your Bibles, please turn into Hosea chapter 7. Thank you, music team. We're desperate for God. Where else would we turn but to his word, to his life-giving words? Hosea chapter 7. I believe it can be found on page 754 in your Bibles in the chairs in front of you. One of the things I do every morning as we get ready for Sunday church is I come up here around 8 o'clock and check with the music team and go over any logistics and talk about the service, see if there's any curveballs, any changes. So this morning, we said there was nothing out of the ordinary, nothing weird, except for the message. So, Hosea chapter 7 might seem a little strange, but let us study and work our way through God's word to understand what it means. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to do that here after I read God's word. Hosea chapter 7, verses 3 through 16. By their evil they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are all like a heated oven, whose baker ceases to stir the fire, from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heart of wine, Eat of wine, excuse me. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them a net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves, they rebel against me. Although I am trained and strengthened, their arms, yet they despise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Father, we do see here in these words that there are some things difficult to understand and to relate. So, Lord God, we ask for the Holy Spirit to take the truth that is here from your word. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for us, for training us in righteousness. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that now in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, last week, if you were here, you remember that we learned about repentance. And if you weren't here, that's okay. We'll be continuing on that theme of repentance. We looked at what it means, and we looked at the unrepentant nature of the Israelites. And one of the key themes that we observed was the failure of the Israelites to live a life of repentance. And their failure to live this life of repentance was due in large part for their failure to understand a biblical theology of sin. And we studied how a biblical theology of sin teaches us that we are all sinners by nature. We are all born into this world as sinners. But with this knowledge that we are born sinners, we don't treat sin lightly. We treat sin for what it is. Sin is an offense against an all-holy God. Sin is evil, and evil is sin. We live in a world by which evil and wickedness and sin, it is very real. It is very present. I don't know any other way to explain to you the tragic events that happened in Oregon or Columbine. Sandy Hook, or 9-11, any of these things. How do we explain any of them except for the world we live in is evil? And there are evil people. These are the first words spoke to us in our passage of study this morning. Hosea chapter 7, verse 3, by their evil. And we began to see a litany of what their evil, evil looks like. People are evil, and their evil breeds an unrepentant spirit. It breeds a spiritual adultery, a a wickedness that left unmitigated has no bounds of what evil people will do. And unfortunately, that's what we're going to continue to see here in Hosea chapter 7. But before we go any further, let let me issue a warning to us. As we study Hosea chapter 7, before we read this chapter and do what so many of us are tempted to do, let's be careful not to read America into Hosea chapter 7. It's easy for Americans, I think, to read God's word and think that the Bible is God's special word to America. It's not. For one, Hosea is not prophesying to the nation of the United States of America. Hosea is prophesying to one nation and one nation only, and that is ancient Israel. That is who these words are spoken to. But number two, the instruction here, the the correction, the discipline that is given is directed toward God's people. We might say these are the words for the Old Testament church. And so therefore, these instructions, these warnings that are stated here in Hosea chapter 7, and really all of Hosea, are are for God's people, for God's people of all time. They are here for us. So let us not remove ourselves from this prophecy and from this teaching, yet let us be careful not to think that God's just talking about America. He's talking about his people. 
And so in Hosea chapter 7, verses 3 through 16, we're going to observe some things here. We're going to learn some things that are kind of, kind of interesting. We're going to look at four illustrations of what an unrepentant nature looks like. And then we're also going to observe four actions of what a true repentance looks like. So the first thing we see is four similes, four illustrations, four little pictures that show the unrepentant nature of Israel. These four pictures may seem kind of weird and strange to our modern ears, but to an 8th century B.C. Jew, they would make perfect sense and they would understand these illustrations from everyday life. And so the first illustration we would observe there in verses 4 through 7 is that of a hot oven. Israel is like a hot oven. In Israel's unfaithfulness and their rebellion, she was literally being burned up, literally being consumed because there was no restraint on their evil passions. So the best way I could illustrate this and think of this, and some of the cooks can come and, and correct me after this, but one of the things we love to cook in our house is baked potatoes. So go and crank the oven up to 500 degrees. and it takes quite a while to get an oven, at least my oven, to reach 500 degrees. At that point, it is very hot. And it takes the potato, a large-sized potato, an hour or so, maybe a little more, to cook through thoroughly before it is, it is good and ready to eat. But even after those baked potatoes are finished, and we pull them out of the oven, and we set them there on the counter and turn the oven off, that oven is quite hot for literally hours after that. The kitchen's hot. We're turning the air down. We're turning the fans on. There's a lot of heat still radiating from that oven once it had reached 500 degrees. You could probably even cook some things in the oven after you've turned it off after 500 degrees. It remains so hot. Well, this illustration of a hot oven for Israel is to show their propensity toward evil. And it didn't take much to stroke the fires of their evil to get them to sin and do more sin, more and more and more. The heat of their sin kept burning. Look in verse 6. That's what it means. For their hearts are like an oven. They approach their intrigue, that is, their, their sinful ways. And all night their anger smolders. You know, the oven was kind of left on. It was, the heat was still going. And in the morning it blazes like a fire. These ancient Israelite ovens that were somewhat like a clay pit, you know, a clay-type oven, they would literally make the oven hot by coals, by fire. And so all night long it would smolder, it would never go out. This is a striking illustration if you think of it. If we let the fire of our sin continue to smolder and retain its heat, then it will take very little to, to get it rekindled, to get it blazing again. If we let the fire of our sin just continue to burn, it will continue to burn, and it will take little to stoke it up and to get it going hot again. And so the application for us, as it was for Israel, dabbling in sin and not repenting of it, not turning away, not shutting it down, not dousing it, and, not, and, and instead filling your life with righteousness 
It will consume you like a burning hot oven. And that's why we must turn from sin and turn to righteousness. We must not feed our sin, lest it become a hot, raging fire by the morning. So that's the first illustration. The second is that of a half-baked cake. In verses 8 through 9, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned or a half-baked cake. A cake that is cooked on one side and, and not turned over the finished the process is not very good. I know that when I've tried to help out in the kitchen baking some things, there's been plenty of disasters. But well-trained cooks who love to bake know exactly how to get that bread, how to get it well-cooked on all sides. So this illustration of unrepentant Israel is to show their, their half-baked, their half-hearted love for God. This is symbolic of an unfaithful people who were, who were foolish and, and uncommitted because they were only halfway committed. They only love God halfway and not with their whole heart. Their half-hearted or half-baked religion was because of their syncretism. I've used that word several times. What, was, what is syncretism? It's, they were mixing worship of the one true God with worship of the other nations, worshiping Baal and other false gods. They were trying to take all these things and mix them together. And that's what it says in verse 8. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. What, the, what Hosea meant by there is they were taking religion, they were taking practices from ungodly, unrepentant, wicked nations who did not worship Yahweh their God, and they were mixing it in with their worship. And God is a jealous God. He will not tolerate that. And so for us, lukewarm, half-baked, half-hearted Christianity, it's worthless. It's no good. It doesn't taste good. God wants us to turn from our half-hearted devotion to Him and to worship Him wholeheartedly. He wants us to be sold out in faithfulness to Him with our lives. He wants all of us, not half of us. Not part of us. Least we become like a half-baked cake that's no good. The third illustration we see here in this passage is that of a silly dove. Look in verses 11 through 12. Ephraim, remember, you recall Ephraim was the largest tribe in Israel. So when we read the word Ephraim, that's another way of calling upon the nation of Israel. Ephraim is like a dove. Silly and without sense. A dove, if you've ever dove hunted or ever had doves in your yard, you would probably quickly recognize that they they don't have much sense. <laughs> they're kind of witless. They're kind of they're kind of dumb animals. Uh, last year, there's this Bradford pair that had grown up very big in our yard, and we were we were tired of it dropping all those little pears and getting guck all over our carpet but the other thing was the doves would just come and nest in there and eat those little pears little berries like crazy and so of course doves did what birds do all over the ground i don't need to go any further there 
was like, I'm taking out that tree. We've got to get rid of that tree. But it was such a common nesting place for these doves that even for weeks after I'd cut down that tree, they still kept coming back. And they would land on my roof and kind of walk around like, where'd that tree go? You know, they would keep coming back, keep coming back. They were silly. They were stupid animals. This illustration, though, here of Ephraim, of Israel being like a silly dove, a witless dove, shows their unrepentant nature and shows their foolishness, their ignorance. Because look, they were calling to Egypt. They were going to Assyria. They couldn't even decide which superpower they wanted to help them. They were witless. They were dumb. And so I will tell you this morning, don't be a silly dove. (laughs) Don't be a silly dove. Don't be foolish. Don't let your pride, as Israel did, look in verse 10. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Do not let your pride, as Israel did, get in the way of dropping you to your knees and repenting. Rather, seek the Lord. Seek Him only. Don't be caught in your foolishness. The fourth illustration that we see in this passage is that of a faulty weapon. Look in verse 16. They were turned but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Uh, The most dangerous weapon of ancient times was a bow, a bow and arrow, the archer. Those were the snipers. Those were the ones who could inflict the most collateral danger. Any hunter will tell you in this room that one of the worst things is to go hunting and fail to inspect your weapon properly and your bowstring is broken or it pops when you try to fire it. Or your gun, better yet, has not been cleaned and it backfires. Very dangerous. At that point, your hunting expedition turns into a nature-watching expedition. Because it's worthless at that point. Israel put their trust in a weapon that was useless and would provide them no protection. Their defeat is sure. And this illustration of Israel's unrepentance was to show their utter uselessness. They were like a weapon that did not even work. And so again, to relate this to us, you know, what a sad day. What a sad day when the people of God become useless to him. Useless. And this is the concern that I have, and I know many of you do, for the mainline church today. We read the news, we learn about other churches, and Lord protect us, even from our church, that so many churches, so many denominations have compromised on so many core biblical principles. What use can they be to God? But yet for us, If we continue to live only for ourselves and for our sin, then we have no use for God. 
we will not be able to fulfill the command that he gave to his people in the Old Testament to be a blessing to all the nations and yet even still in the New Testament to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let us not be a faulty, useless weapon. So even though these four illustrations of an unrepentant spirit to illustrate the unrepentant nature of Israel is kind of depressing. And I don't want to just leave it there. Because in these illustrations is actually found four actions of what true repentance looks like. What does it look like to repent? What does it truly look like to turn from sin and to turn to righteousness? Well, it looks like what Yahweh was pleading for Israel to do, yet they would not do. And the first is found there in verse 7. Look there with me in verse 7 at the end. He says, and none of them, none of them calls upon me. So that is the negative. What's the positive? What is the action of repentance that we're called to do here? Call upon the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Yahweh God, the God of the Bible, call upon the Lord. When we fall down, when we mess up, when we're crushed by our sin, a spirit of repentance does not look inward for strength. We do not look to ourselves or to some other nation or to some other thing to help us. We call upon the Lord. You see in verse 7 there that even the rulers, the kings, the leaders of the country, they were crushed by the weight of their sin and misery. And yet they refused to call upon Yahweh their God. Surely that the God that delivered them out of Egypt, the God that did so many miracles and so many wonders through all the, the great kings of Israel, he must not be the one that can save us. It must be another God. They, they were thinking that in their foolishness and their unrepentance but why why would they not call upon the lord the puritan richard sibb says it is dangerous to look for that from ourselves which we must have from christ i think that was their danger they were looking for strength in and of themselves and just trying to do it all on their own Instead of turning to Christ, instead of turning to the Lord. And that's a message for us. In our sin and in our misery, let's not turn inward. Let's not look inward. Let's call upon God. Let's not just call upon, is there some higher power out there that could please help me? No. Let's call upon God. The one true God of the Bible, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who rescues us, who redeems us, who restores us, who does all these things to those who call out to him. Maybe you are going through something incredibly difficult this morning. And everybody here probably is. A family situation, a sickness a hard job, some inner turmoil, some inner sin that you cannot seem to kick. 
is God trying to get you to call out to him? Call out to him. That's one action of repentance we see here. A second we see in verse 10. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord. That's the negative. negative. They do not return to the Lord. What's the positive? Return to the Lord. Return. The need to return is brought about because we're lost. We lose our way. We get so bogged down in our sin and misery that we lose our way. We cannot find our way. Repentance means to return. It means to go back. And for for the believer in Christ, it means to return to the cross. Where we first found mercy. Where we first found grace. Where we first found love. Many uh, people have misquoted this verse and again tried to Americanize it, but it means so much for God's people. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 14 gives us this picture of what it means to return. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. This is what it means to return to him. Do you feel this morning that you've lost your way? Do you feel like you are lost? Return to God. How? How do you return? How how do you get back there, you may ask? Don't just tell me to do it. How do I do it? One place to start. And this is the only thing I know to tell you. One place to start is to go, is to run to, is to immerse yourself in the ordinary means of grace. What do I mean by that? What are the ordinary means which God blesses his people, which he comforts them, which he heals them, which he restores them, redeems them? It's regular worship. Attending worship with God's people. Prayer. Yes, reading your Bible. And fellowship with other believers, others who are going through hard things and difficult things just like you. You see, these are not all things that God has put upon us to weigh us down and to show us that we can't live for him. No, they are given to us as a blessing. They are given to us to comfort us, to strengthen us, to to help us. And so let's run to these things. And that's what it means to return to the Lord. A third action of true biblical repentance we see there also in verse 10. Because they did not return to the Lord their God nor seek him for all this. The negative there, they did not seek the Lord. So for us it means we are to seek the Lord. An action of repentance. Because see, repentance is not just stop doing something. It's start doing something. And one of the things we need to start here is to seek the Lord. They were called, seek the Lord your God. And that is what the, that's what it says. Return to and seek the Lord their God. Not just any God. Not a statue. Yahweh God. 
their Redeemer. To seek means to to search for, to intently try to find something. Seeking is an, an action verb. Seeking takes effort. It takes discipline. Seeking the Lord in repentance looks a lot like what we read in our call to worship. Seek the Lord in His strength, not our strength. Seek His strength and seek His presence continually. Perhaps repentance this morning looks for you like effort. Perhaps you really do need to make an effort in your Christian life. Perhaps there really is something very intentional and very deliberate that you need to do in your walk with Christ. Practicing discipline to seek the Lord is a good thing. It's a rewarding thing. We are called to seek Him. And the fourth action of repentance we see there in verse 14. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. Negatively, they did not cry to God from their hearts. And they just laid on their beds and cried and wept and felt sorry for themselves. And they gashed themselves. Literally, they were doing these cultic, pagan worship things to try to earn favor from somebody. But it does no good. But what is the believer called to do? We are called to cry out to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. What do we do when we find ourselves living out of accord with God's will? What do we do when we discover ourselves to be sinners who have not sought the Lord or lived according to the precepts He has given us? What does this pathway to repentance look like for us? Crying out to God from the heart. To cry out to God from the heart means that we cry out with all that we are, with all that we got, with everything, our total beings. We cry to him. So what does this look like? Well, I want to try to illustrate this to you from a children's story. That is a a pale picture, but I think that it helps us illustrate this soul's cry. In C.S. Lewis's books, The Chronicles of Narnia, the last book is called The Last Battle. And if I should probably put these books on for sale after this illustration because it's going to make you want to go read it. But in this book, King Tyrion, one of the kings of Narnia, finds himself hopeless, literally finds himself tied to a tree being persecuted and left for dead. And as we find him hopeless and tied to that tree, I think that we actually see a picture of what it means to cry out to the Lord. Let me read from the book. Tyrion thought of the other kings who had lived and died in Narnia in old times. And it seemed to him that none of them had ever been so unlucky as himself. He thought of his great-grandfather's great-grandfather, King Rillian, who had been stolen away by the witch when he was only a young prince and kept for years in the dark caves beneath the land of the northern giants. But, that, but then it had all come, right at the end, for two mysterious children had suddenly appeared from the land beyond the world's end, 
and had rescued him so that he came home to Narnia and had a long and prosperous reign. It's not like that with me, said Tyrion to himself. Then he went further back and thought about Rillian's father, Caspian the seafarer, whose wicked uncle, King Miriaz, had tried to murder him and how Caspian had fled away into the woods and lived among the dwarfs. But that story, too, had all come right in the end, for Caspian also had been helped by the children. Only there were four of them at that time who came from somewhere beyond the world and fought a great battle and set him on his father's throne. But it was long ago, said Tyrion to himself. That sort of thing doesn't happen anymore. And then he remembered, for he had always been good at history when he was a boy. How those same four children who had helped Caspian had been in Narnia over a thousand years before. And it was then that they had done the most remarkable thing of all. For then they had defeated the terrible white witch and ended the hundred years of winter. And after that they had reigned all four of them together at Care Parable. Till they were no longer children but great kings and lovely queens. And their reign had been the golden age of Narnia. And Aslan had come into that story a lot. He had come into all the other stories too, as Tyrion now remembered. Aslan and children from another world, thought Tyrion. They have always come in when things were at their worst. Only if they could come now. And I'll stop there in the story just to think, what did, what did he do? He remembered. He remembered the good things that had happened. And that's One of the things that God's people must do is remember God's goodness, remember God's deliverance, his faithfulness. Back to the story. Here he is, helpless, hopeless, tied to a tree, left for dead. And he called out, Aslan, 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 come and help us now. But the darkness and the cold and the quietness went on just the same. Let me be killed, cried the king. I ask nothing for myself, but come and save all Narnia. Still, there was no change in the night or the wood, but there began to be a kind of change inside Tyrion. Without knowing why, he began to feel a faint hope, and he felt somehow stronger. Oh, Aslan, Aslan, he whispered. If you will not come yourself, at least send to me the helpers from beyond the world Or let me call to them. Let my voice carry beyond the world. Then, hardly knowing what he was doing, he suddenly cried out in a great voice, Children, children, friends of Narnia, quick, come to me. Across the worlds I call to you. I, Tyrion, king of Narnia, lord of Careparable and emperor of the Lone Islands. And immediately he was plunged into a dream. If it was a dream. More vividly than any he had had in his life. This is a story of fiction. But I believe it begins to capture our imaginations and helps us to see our desires as it begins to illustrate a soul that is desperate, desperate for Christ and desperate for believers to call upon him for forgiveness. For the believer, our cry is to Jesus Not just crying out and wailing for the sake of crying. The greatest action of repentance that we can take is to cry out to Jesus. 
Romans gives us these words, and Romans 10 gives us the soul's cry, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and, it is, and are justified as with your mouth that you confess and are saved. We cry out to Jesus. So seeking, calling out, returning, crying. That's what repentance looks like. Don't let your sin be kindled like a hot oven. Be on guard against a half-baked, half-hearted religion. Don't be a fool or a silly dove or a faulty weapon useless to God, but rather repent. Turn from your sin, turn from unfaithfulness and wickedness, and turn to the one, the one who is his final hour, cried out as he was bearing the brunt of our sin. And so let us cry out to Jesus right on cue. Let's pray. Father, that baby's cry is just a reminder of how helpless we are without you, how desperate we are for you. Lord, forgive us where we run to our sin, where we run to ourselves, where we run to other things in our misery, in our fallenness, in our brokenness. Lord, help us. Turn us around. Help us to see and cry out to the one who has redeemed us, who has restored us, who has forgiven us through his precious blood. That is the Lord Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.